Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, students of the future. It's time to blow off those lockdown blues and start taking punts on the outlook for 2030. It's time to huddle up with your second best mates for a good half hour. It's time again for Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson and James Eddy. How are you this week, Matt? Yeah, good. I'm not sure about these punts of the future, James. We don't take punts. We research these so well that we know these things are going to happen. Yeah, but we all watch those episodes of Towards 2000 and Beyond 2000 and whatnot, and we look back at those in retrospect and we think, oh, yeah, that didn't yeah, really take right. off. It's all a bit of a punt, but yeah, look, I love it all the same. We get some good listener feedback, and anyone that wants to send us some information, ask at techtalk.digital is the email address, so send your questions in. And I've had some questions this week from some listeners that are talking about 5G, not what you might be thinking about. They're not worried about conspiracies about what 5G is going to do to us. But in regional areas, they're interested to know whether or not 5G is going to solve all their reception problems. All right. So it's not conversations about whether or not they're going to be controlled by uh, some sort of mind controller then. Those people don't tend to listen to our shows, yeah, James. Yeah, just as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but tell us about this 5G and, and these misconceptions here. Well, so one of the things is in regional areas, obviously, one of the things that we know is that people want to have reception wherever they are, if they drive around, out on their farm, wherever they might be, it's something that we all want wherever we go. But of course, in regional areas, you see these big black spots, you see big gaps between where you can get reception and you can't. So much talk around 5G, some people have said, this will be great, 5G, I see it being introduced, Yeah, that'll solve my problems, won't it? And of course, it won't. And I just want to get a little bit technical here with our listeners, just to understand a little bit more about 5G. Yeah, because it's all about wavelength and frequency, right? Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. And that's the, the secret here. If you look at 3G and 4G, they've typically been around the 700 megahertz, 850 megahertz frequencies are the normal ones. Now, we've got some higher frequencies on that, but they're the original sort of frequencies for the 3G and 4G. Hmm. And the frequency, of course, is directly related to how much data you can transmit. There's some clever encoding of that data, but ultimately, if you've got more cycles per second, that's more ones and zeros you can transmit per second. That means more data per second. Yeah. So, for those of people who um, don't speak binary, actually, there's an awesome joke about speaking binary. There are 10 types of people... <laughs> In this world, those who speak binary and those who don't. But anyway. <laughs> You've just been waiting up for all these weeks yeah, to use that yeah, one, haven't sorry. you? Sorry, <laughs> but I've distracted you. Yeah, so yeah, we've got the, the wavelengths, yeah. So so you've got ones and zeros, and you can pack more ones and zeros where you've got a higher frequency. High frequency, so there's more peaks and troughs, so you can get more ones and zeros packed into that. So that sounds fantastic, which is where 5G, for example, higher frequencies. Now, the frequencies of 5G in Australia at the moment are typically around 2.6 gigahertz and 3.5 gigahertz, obviously higher than 700 and 850 megahertz. But the whole idea of 5G is it's designed to operate 26 gigahertz, 30 gigahertz, 300 gigahertz. Yeah, right. That's high frequency. High frequency. That sounds pretty exciting because, wow, look at how much data I'm going to be able to transmit. But as with everything, it comes at a cost. There's an upside and a downside to just about everything in life. As you transmit that at higher frequencies, the wavelength reduces. And you'd probably tell me the formula, something like the speed of light divided by the frequency. That's uh, the wave equation, yeah, V equals F lambda, yep. There you go, thank you. So as we go up in frequencies, our wavelength gets shorter. I've done a quick calculation, 700 megahertz gives you a wavelength of about 42.9 centimetres. 26 gigahertz, which is the low end of where 5G will be, gives us a wavelength of 1.2 centimetres. And what that means is as you start to try and pass through things, I'm talking about buildings, fridges, people, uh, a frame of a house, for example. Anything that gets in the way. Lots of things do when you're trying to talk on your phone. Those shorter wavelengths will be absorbed more easily by all of those materials. Bottom line, 
5G, fantastic for data, fantastic for concentration. In other words, you can have a lot more 5G devices in a square kilometre of devices with 5G, and you'll get lower latency. But the big issue is... You go further away from a tower, there'll be more things to get in the road between you and the tower. You won't get the range. And you're shot. That's right. So those people who thought that because they're out in the sticks, that 5G towers, say, in a centre like Dubbo, it's not going to be any advantage at all. It's going to be a disadvantage for range because of those higher frequencies. Now, you can still have 5G on the lower frequencies, but on the lower frequencies, you're going to get all the exciting advantages of Mm. 5G, like better speed. So where will this go? We'll have 4G for a long time to come. I don't imagine we'll lose 4G. I mean, 3G network's being turned off in about 2024. I don't imagine the 4G network will be turned off till sometime in the mid-2030s. The only solution to 5G, those higher frequencies and getting the range, is just to put more 5G towers up. More towers, yeah. 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 So, anyway, it's interesting because that's where people think the solution's going to be. It's not going to be with 5G. Don't get me wrong, 5G is great. But just keep in mind the purpose of 5G and the advantages and disadvantages. Very good. All right, thanks for that. Uh, and now, a quick heads up on what's coming up for us today. Land Rover is skipping past EVs and headed straight for hydrogen in a really interesting move. Then we've got some space-age surgery for that stitch in time. And flying car races are going to become a thing now. For those who enjoyed young Anakin Skywalker's form in The Phantom Menace, stay tuned for that. But... What better way to kick things off than with a story about a revolutionary HR technique that they're taking up in China? Folks, anyone who works in a space with a team of more than about, say, three people will know that staff morale is an imperative. Happy staff equals plenty of productivity. Uh, Google went all out with their sleeping chambers and their masseuses and their foosball tables in their offices uh, and their top-of-the-line in-house baristas. But Canon in China, on the other hand, have taken a slightly different line, Matt. They have taken a slightly different line. Now, are you smiling, James? You've got a big grin on your face. Well, I'm trying to. <laughs> Good yes. work. I wonder if our listeners can hear our smiles coming through the microphones. And Where in, are the cameras? <laughs> that's right. In Canon, in China, for their subsidiaries over there in China, they believe that the way to a happy workforce is to make sure people are smiling. If you want to get into the building, when you come to work in the morning, there's face recognition software. That's fine. That's a common sort of way of making sure people can access the correct areas. You've got to smile. If you walk up to the facial recognition camera and just have a normal look on your face or a driver's license look on your face, a very serious look, oh, no. <laughs> they won't let you into work because you're not happy enough. So if traffic was a little bit tough or if something's happened yeah, on the home front, say you're feeling a little bit blue today. Exactly right. So Get the grin on. And you might fake the grin to get through the front door, but if you go into a certain meeting room or an office or even go into your office, there might be some more restrictions and might be some facial recognition software in there. You've got to smile to get into each of those meetings, especially going into a a board meeting or a meeting with other colleagues. You definitely want to be smiling there. because there a Simpsons episode on this? I just think, yeah. (laughs) I think there's been a Simpsons episode on everything we've talked (laughs) about. Right. (laughs) But this is the thing. The whole concept is, do you fake it till you make it? Is that where Canon believe if you start to smile, is that enough to make you happier in the workplace. Well, I wonder if they can tell between a a smile and a grimace. Uh, You know, sometimes when you're in pain, it might look like you're smiling. But yeah, look, I I understand there's um, an Indian, I think it stems out of India, excuse me, folks, if I'm wrong there, but um, a therapy that stems out of laughter. And I know that the body can't tell the difference between a fake laugh and a genuine laugh. So this laughter therapy actually releases the same endorphins as, um, you know, whether it's fake or whether it's um, natural. I wonder if smiling's got the same 
same effect. And maybe that's the belief of Canon in China where they say, at least if our employees are smiling, they're thinking about being happy or they're partway towards being happy. So maybe that's the whole concept here that they're trying to really move into that realm of, okay, we don't know if they're happy or not, but if they look happy, they've got to be partway down that track. Again, some of the AI in here is quite clever. What it does is it does actually look for the grimace versus the smile. It's looking at not just your mouth, but your entire face, your eyes. Have they got nice squinty crow feet on the side to show that your whole face is smiling (laughs) rather than just the grimace of the mouth? It's a really interesting concept, but they want people happy when they go into work. And I suppose part of it is also with so many large execs or large corporates these days, they want to be able to show some data to show they're doing the right thing. And in this scenario, they might be able to say, look at our smile data. 100% of our people that came to work today were smiling. Therefore, the workforce must be happy. Uh, sorry, a background in theatre is a very marketable quantity then. Apparently it is. I hadn't thought about that, James. Yeah, goodness me. More and more services are moving to the cloud. That's going to bring more and more outages, surely, even you know, for things like banks and whatnot. It is going to bring more outages on a large-scale basis. One of the great things about having a global network of organisations is that you can build scale in. So you can concentrate services and you can get organisations that can do wonderful things they wouldn't possibly have dreamed of doing before because they've got lots of customers. But we've seen a few examples over the last few weeks where one was a banking outage and there's a company called Akamai and they had a a widespread outage. And that meant that if you banked with, say, the Commonwealth or the ANZ or Westpac or AMP or Macquarie Bank or a whole range of banking institutions, then you were out. They're all out. Bad luck. And it it was a case of if you might have a couple of different cards, debit cards, credit cards from different banks, so you'd pull one out and you'd make a purchase. This will save me me from embarrassment at the counter. That's right. So one didn't work, another one didn't work. And I read a funny social media story where someone was lined up at a fast food outlet in between when they made their order and when they got to the screen to actually pay and pick up their order, that's when the outage occurred. So they tried a couple of different cards. Of oh. course, none of them worked. <laughs> People behind them in the line are beeping away. That's all right. Just dip into your cash reserve. Ah, oh, sorry, we don't carry cash anymore. That's exactly oh. right. Where are those old coins in the ashtray? Yeah. Well, you probably don't have an ashtray and you probably don't have coins. So you missed out on both levels. So it is an interesting thing that I think we will see more of these widespread outages. There was another example before that banking one with a company called Fastly, F-A-S-T-L-Y. They provide a lot of data for news outlets. So for example, you might go to your favourite newspaper online, you look up the information, oh, there's no information there. I'll go to one of the alternative sites, oh, I have no information there either. Because Fastly is an aggregator of different services. Aggregator, right. Yeah, so they're right. feeding that data across to different news outlets. And whoops, that's down, then they're all down. So again, that same example, you've got these concentrated services. It's good on the plus side where effectively we're getting better services, better speed of delivery, better pricing from those organisations, which hopefully gets passed on to us. But on the downside, you take out one of them, you're taking out a whole bunch of them. So what you're saying is that when I take my family out for a fancy dinner, that I've got to possibly be prepared to do the washing up of the dishes out the back as well at the end of the night. That seems reasonable. Do that in preference of actually carrying cash because the whole idea of carrying cash for me, sounds very foreign and very yesterday. So yeah, right. <laughs> if I'm stuck with that problem, I'd rather do the dishes than have a bit of cash oh, in my I'm pocket. I'm still trying to pay my kids' pocket money, so it's got to happen that way for me. I'm, I'm a cash carrier, folks. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, teaching, holding, I'm holding everyone else back. Teaching your kids bad habits by giving them cash. <laughs> Here's an interesting turn on green cars. Land Rover is going to skip the EV revolution and go straight to hydrogen. It is an interesting one, and I think with the Land Rover, they've got a Defender, which is a very popular car for Land Rover in their petrol and diesel models. And I think for Land Rover, they've 
pictured this idea that the Land Rover Defender is something that's used for people on either long trips or going out bush and going out and attacking the wild and, and really being part of the nature strip and really getting into it over those big days out there. And they see that maybe EVs aren't perfect for them. They may be wrong about that. I've got a different opinion about that. But mm. they see the solution is by going to hydrogen. Now, a hydrogen car is basically an electric car with a faster refueling method. So, for example, a hydrogen car has electric motors, it has a battery, but a small battery, and then the idea is the hydrogen is used to produce electricity to give electricity to the battery to run the car. So it drives like an electric car. So I'm still excited about that concept, but it just means refueling is just like a normal petrol refueling. You go to a station of some description, you plug in a bowser of some description, and you fill your car up with hydrogen, and you carry that hydrogen around in something like a fuel tank. Obviously, it would be highly pressurized. We've talked about it before. Hydrogen doesn't turn to liquid until minus 253 degrees Celsius. You're going to keep it in a... You're not going to have a a minus 253 degrees Celsius (laughs) container in your car. It's going to be highly compressed. There's an issue that some people are concerned about with that carrying around that highly compressed yeah, container. Yeah. We've done that with, say, taxis have had LPG for a long time. So we're probably okay. We're probably comfortable mm. with that. But that's the advantage of hydrogen. You can put that in there, refuel like you normally would, and you've got the range. When you think about the energy density, when you look at, say, batteries, they're at 0.25 kilowatt hours per kilogram of battery. That's pretty low. Pretty low. If you look at petrol and diesel, and obviously different fuel economy or different vehicles, but roughly about, say, 14 kilowatt hours per kilogram for petrol. When you look at hydrogen, it's 34 kilowatt hours per kilogram. It does, yeah. 34, right. So that's where maybe Land Rover believes you fill up with hydrogen, you might have a normal size fuel tank, you might get 1,000 kilometres, you might get 1,200 kilometres yeah, right. out of that normal size fuel tank. We'll have to refuel less, but but we've still got an issue. There's there's no, certainly in Australia, to, to refuel at this stage. So fill-up stations will still be fairly spartan over the uh, the rest of the globe. That, that's exactly right. You don't have many places to actually refuel as such, so that's a problem. We've talked before about hydrogen. We know that only 0.1% of the hydrogen around the world is produced in a, a green way, and we've mm. talked about, say, Geraldton, where they're trying to build a whole area of producing green hydrogen. So there's a bit of work to do there because if all we do is burn coal or burn gas to produce our hydrogen, which is then a clean fuel source for our car, we haven't really achieved much, have we? Mm. The idea will be to produce hydrogen in a clean way, and then you've got to, as you say, you've got to get it out to people. Once you get all that to happen, then that's fantastic. You've got a very clean energy source, and you've got a car that drives fantastically because we know how wonderful electric cars drive. But If you look at, say, for example, in the US, as of June 2021, there were only 49 hydrogen fueling stations in the entire US. So we've got some way to go before we get enough fueling stations. But that's true whether we're talking about electric vehicles or we're talking about hydrogen. Whatever the future will be, we'll have to build a new infrastructure. Yeah, and if you've got a 1,000 litres on the tank, then you can make your plans for a trip a little bit more uh, further down the line than um, the requirements of a normal petrol engine. And I know one of the things that, that we've talked about before, which you love the idea is the idea that when you're driving your electric car in a normal car, normal petrol, diesel sort of car, Mm. you're spending a lot of that energy that's contained within that fuel to produce noise, Mm. to produce Mm. heat, 
and then you get to a certain speed, and then what do you do to slow down from that? You waste some of your disc brakes and your disc pads to actually slow you down. You're burning that up again, yeah, yeah. and you're wasting that energy. One of the great things about electric vehicles, of course, is they rely on Faraday's law of induction. Yeah, so you're turning a motor effectively back into a generator, yeah? Yeah, depending whether you're accelerating or decelerating, that same electric motor is used for both ways to actually use electricity up to go forward yeah. or to regenerate electricity when you're slowing down. Yeah. And you're not using so much of that energy to produce noise and heat. So you're producing more of that energy towards motion. So that's fantastic. All of that still applies for hydrogen. It's just a more convenient fuel source. As much as I love EVs, hydrogen may well be the future in another 10 or 15 years' time. And out the tailpipe, you're only blowing out water anyway. So yeah, good, it's just it? good all around, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, we look forward to, to hearing more on that. And hopefully, um, maybe there might be some government incentives in the future to um, get into hydrogen. We'll wait patiently for that. I think we'll be waiting very patiently for that one, James. <laughs> Well, on that um, subject, New South Wales is following the lead from South Australia and Victoria with a new tax, <clears throat> but uh, environmental groups and car manufacturers are not happy. No, What's not going happy. on, Matt? This sounds crazy to uh, me. Look, Queenslanders are killing us here, James. Here we are in New South Wales. We haven't really done very well in getting people into EVs. We know already, we've spoken about it before, South Australia and Victoria have introduced a tax, a per kilometre tax. I think in Victoria, from memory, it was about two cents per kilometre. And any advocates for either the climate or for electric vehicles or just change in our society, positive change, are saying, well, this is a crazy idea. Everywhere else around the world seems to be offering subsidies, encouraging people, and they seem to be discouraging people. So New South Wales has thought, this is a great idea. Why don't we yeah. do it as well? Yeah. Wow. So they, they've obviously had a bit of a chat together, some of the treasurers from the different states, and say, hey, we've got a new income source here. Let's hit those electric vehicle <laughs> owners and get some money out of them, which seems very frustrating. And you mentioned, I assume it was tongue-in-cheek, in the last story about hydrogen, about some government subsidies towards helping this. We'd love to see that. Now, they've tried to dress it up a little bit, and they've said they're going to introduce $171 million in charging infrastructure across the state by, say, the year 2030, which sounds exciting. And yeah, sounds well, they're like going to give you every encouragement to buy an EV now, aren't they? Yeah. So, so they're the, putting in the stations. So they can tax you. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And they also announced that you're going to have a $3,000 subsidy on an EV and then a little asterisk next to that that says if the EV costs less than $69,000. Uh, now, we know EVs are a bit dearer at the moment. They're a new technology. So most of them probably are over $69,000. So it doesn't really help much. And I still have that frustration. You can buy a $200,000 V8 6.2 litre ute and yeah. pay no luxury car tax. You buy a $70,000 EV, you pay luxury car tax. Yeah. So there's these disconnects between where we seem to be headed in the community and where the world's headed and what the state governments are doing. The almighty dollar sign is flashing in front of them saying, here's a few dollars you can squeeze out of people. And the thing that that blows me away is surely our um, fossil fuel companies, they're seeing the writing on the wall. So surely they're investing in these renewables and these um, you know, these, these new new ways of getting about. They can't be relying completely on their, their oil supplies. Surely yeah. they, are, they are projecting... Can, can we as a, a, a country uh, follow suit? Can, if, we, can if, we, yeah, invest If I'm on the, the board future? of directors of a, a coal or an oil company, I'm not doing the right thing by my shareholders, by my entire organisation, if I say, yep, we'll just keep digging up digging coal up. or we'll keep mining for oil and that's our future strategy. I yeah. know that tucked away down there somewhere in some confidential papers, they've got their strategy. 
for hydrogen, for EVs, for whatever it might be. Otherwise, they know that their company will no longer exist. It's the Kodak story of the world where people will think they're in producing rolls of film like Kodak were, yeah. whereas really they're producing memories and, and they lost the whole plot for Kodak based yeah. on digital cameras. Yeah. The great story there is that they actually had the original patent for a digital camera back in about 1974 and they shelved it because they thought it would hurt their sales of mm. rolls of film, which it would have done, but it was always going to hurt their sales of rolls of film. They just missed the plot in terms of letting someone else do it. Yeah. And so those board of directors of all those companies know about what's going on, definitely. Folks, do you suffer from trypanophobia? That is the fear of needles. Uh, we've discussed using VR, but a new invention could help here. Like the fear of needles is a super common phobia, I assume. I wonder if it's, it's the most common. Like... Like uh, I would have said spiders or, um, or snakes or maybe um, heights. Tell us more about trypanophobia. And uh, Well, I'm just impressed you got trypanophobia out three times and got it right every time. That's, <laughs> that's very impressive. But it's about a quarter of Aussies are scared of needles to the point where they will almost refuse to have a needle. I mean, maybe if it's life-threatening that they need that needle, but if it's any sort of choice in that, if they can choose to have it or not, they won't. Now, I don't... Like any phobia, if yeah, if you've got it, there's just no way you can deal with, with having that needle. That's right. The longer it goes, too, between needles, the more that builds up. Yeah. I don't have any data for you on snakes and spiders. I still think snakes would probably be higher than, say, needles. But what happened in this scenario, there was a nurse that saw low health outcomes for people that had trypanophobia because they'd been resisting needles over the years mm. and so their health suffered as a result. Now that might be a bit annoying or not great when it comes to some normal health outcomes but now when we're trying to get the whole of society vaccinated this can be a major impediment yeah. on getting our society back to whatever normal will look like in the future, James. Yeah. So the idea of trying to beat that, and you're right, we did talk about that a few weeks ago about using VR to try and get us past trypanophobia, but they've come up with another invention. And this nurse has actually come up with this idea, and it uses something that is kind of simple in its concept. It's a Band-Aid on steroids is what I'd call it. It's called Needle Calm, and the idea is you put this, let's call it a Band-Aid for the moment, you put that in the fridge, and when you pull it out of the fridge, it's cold, obviously. You put it on and it applies pressure and it's obviously cold. So you put that on just above where the needle is going to go. You put that on for about 30 seconds. It desensitizes the area and then you don't even know about it, but the needle goes in and you've had it without even thinking about it. Yeah, right. Really clever in terms of that whole process, not injecting drugs, not putting some sort of local anesthetic over it. It's just a simple concept. I don't know whether it's mental or physical, but mm. if it works, it works. Mm. And well, that's right. Well, they, they certainly won't feel the needle. They won't. They'll still have that expectation of the needle. So I guess it's just on the count of three: one, bang, I hit you, and then go two and three later on. <laughs> I like the tactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds um, like you've done that with the kids, James. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness me! I look forward to that uh, on behalf of every trypanophobe that's out there. Now, what's the biggest deterrent to people using cryptocurrencies here in Australia? I'd say it's the fact that you're throwing your money into an imaginary resource, but that's just me. Matt, what is the biggest deterrent? The biggest deterrent is risk. 43% in a recent survey of Aussies said that volatility of cryptocurrency was their biggest deterrent. And that kind of makes sense. If I'm going to go buy something for a dollar today, and I don't know whether it's going to be worth $1.50 or 50 cents tomorrow, I'm probably a little bit reluctant to go and buy that. Now, when they keep seeing cryptocurrencies going up, then they say, well, that sounds fantastic. But 
what goes up must come must down. Come down so maybe at some point in the future, they go, maybe I don't really like that idea. So that particular stat, 43%, is up, 14% up on that same information from January this year. And what's interesting about that is something like Bitcoin has gone up dramatically from January this year. And that's actually created more fear with people, not the fact that, wow, I better get into this now because it's going up. People have actually identified that it's more volatile so even though it's gone up, they're still reluctant to go and invest in something like Bitcoin because they see that it's going up. So that's yeah. actually increased the fear factor. 32% of respondents said they'd rather buy shares or have money in savings. And not surprisingly, 25% of people said that cryptocurrencies were overvalued. Now, to your point, what value do you put on a cryptocurrency <laughs> <laughs> when it doesn't really exist? Just, just brought out of someone's imagination. This, this to me, reeks of the emperor's new clothes. I just reckon people need to have paid more attention when they were being told Hans Christian Andersen stories back in the day. But um, it is, It's a good that, example of the emperor's new clothes. I love that idea that, well, you're just stupid, aren't you? You can't see them. So yeah, it's a bit you like, can't see how wonderful this cryptocurrency is. Everyone right. else sees how wonderful it is. You've got to get on board with it. You must be crazy. But there was this example that I only vaguely remember, but there was a tulip boom back in the Netherlands, back in about 1637 or 1640, roughly there. So somewhere around there, there was this whole boom on tulips where tulips became incredibly valuable and you were paying ridiculous amounts of money for tulips. Why? I I don't, I can't remember the exact details of the story. She loves tulips. Lucky she wasn't around 400 years ago, James, because you would have gone broke buying one tulip. And of course, the whole thing crashed completely and people that invest incredible amounts of money in tulips suddenly were worth nothing. Now, there might have been some really clever tulip grower back then. It's, it's worthwhile researching. We should do a bit of research on that one. There might have been some really clever tulip grower who said, you know what, let's make these really valuable and I can make a killing on it, just like maybe someone did with Bitcoin. Let's make that really <laughs> valuable. And, everyone, and then they get out when they want to get out. Yeah. So if you look back at history, we've seen a bit of that before. Some of the Gen Z people are more likely to own cryptocurrency. Now, whether that's because younger people are traditionally higher risk takers, or whether they know more than you and I, James, I'm not Mm. quite sure. But so Gen Z, slightly younger people are a bit more inclined to own it. Across Australia, we've got about 13% of Aussies owning cryptocurrency at the moment. So that's broken down, if you like. That to me sounds high, but anyway, yeah. (laughs) It is. Well, Bitcoin is 9%. Ethereum is 8%. Doggy coin, the joke. Yeah. Was it, was it Dogecoin or whatever? Yeah, but, yeah uh, I know we've talked but, about it before. I don't know whether it's Dogecoin or Doggycoin. Yeah, well, look, I just get the feeling that Elon Musk drops a, a pebble in the pond and Gen Z go and grab their surfboards. They're yeah. ready for surfs up. And yeah, that's right. Well, 5% of people must be Elon Musk followers because the Dogecoin or Doggycoin is 5% of people have got that in Australia. Bitcoin Cash, 4%. Tech Talk Cash. We haven't taken off with Tech Talk Cash yet, but we've got to get onto that one, yeah, James. Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin ownership has fallen a little bit since January, so that's interesting as well. Mm. So back in January, it was 13% of people, as I mentioned before, down to 9% now. So it's even volatile in the ownership of it. Maybe we're talking about a small sample space as well, so a few different transactions can change those percentages quite quickly. But it is really interesting. I, I think we have talked about some cryptocurrencies a little bit. I don't see us not talking about them in the future because it's still happening. And whether it all collapses like the tulip concept or whether it goes through the roof and we're completely wrong about it, James, Mm. I can't tell you the answer at the moment, but for anyone that's out there that's interested... I own zero cryptocurrencies, if that's any indication whatsoever. <laughs> I've got double that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Wind energy. A uh, prominent politician of a decade ago proclaimed it as an eyesore. This was predicted to be a multi-pronged degradation on the Australian landscape and on the economy. Matt, how are we looking now, a decade on, with a fairly well-established wind 
turbine infrastructure? Uh, and what are the predict- predictions for the next decade? So do you think that same politician would have said that electricity poles 100 years ago were a blight on the landscape? Mm, Don't mm. get that electricity delivered to your house. Keep burning those lanterns. Those whale those, oil lanterns, <laughs> yes. Right. Who wants those terrible electricity poles put up and then go forward another 80 years and say, who wants those terrible mobile phone towers put up? Yeah, yeah we do change our landscape on a regular basis, and that's called progress in most situations. Give me electricity poles and mobile phone towers every day. Give me wind turbines every day. I just yeah. think they're all fantastic and part of our technology progress. And it is quite impressive to look out on the horizon when you see a wind farm. I do I actually, like them. I like it, yeah. yeah. look, I've heard some people say they're ugly, but I get excited yeah. by what it represents. What yeah, and what it's doing, yeah, yeah. And the same people that say that they look ugly in the landscape, do they go past a coal-fired power plant and say, look at that beautiful smoke being spewed into the environment? Work of art, yeah. (laughs) That's right. So the good part is that you and I, using a bit of common sense, James, said five years, ten years ago, that wind turbines might be expensive to put up, but to run them for the next 25 years or thereabouts, then you're not feeding coal or gas into them every day. You're feeding nothing into them. You've got to maintain them, a bit of grease and oil change on their gearbox. You just have to let the wind do its job. Hmm. So logically, they were going to be cheaper. An expert said, yes, they will bring down electricity prices, but experts got it wrong. They said they'd bring down electricity prices, but they didn't go far enough. So the predictions, no, the predictions now are saying that if we look at what's happened so far with the research that's been done and the efficiency being driven out of wind turbines, they say that the cost reductions will be about, this is for our electricity bills, 17 to 35% by the year 2035 and 37 to 49% by the year 2050. Now, most of these savings are being driven by bigger turbines, more efficient turbines, and believe it or not, lower costs of production because they're producing more of them. The same has happened with so many things based around technology. As we produce more, they get better at making them and away we go. So again, some of those predictions in the past were that the savings would be there but lower than those figures. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I also think that um, there's, a, there's a logic there that uh, it's the same with Google. I know that Google doesn't use huge mainframe computers. They just have these enormous office blocks that contain a lot of tiny units of computers. So when something goes on the blink, you're just fixing one little unit and everything else is running sweetly. Yeah, well, that's a good point too. So that if a coal-fired power station goes on the blink <laughs> or Fukushima <laughs> goes on the blink, then that has a huge impact on your electricity production. You look at a wind farm that might have 30 or 40 wind turbines, and if one, for whatever reason, is being maintained or it's on the blink, then that didn't destroy the whole energy field there. But some of the data that's coming out is quite interesting. When we look at, for example, the the size of the turbines, and they break them up a little bit from onshore to offshore, when we look at onshore wind, then, for example, in 2035, they say that those average turbines will be 5.5 megawatts per turbine, which is quite impressive. At the moment, they're about 2.5 megawatts. So again, that's driving some of the efficiency. When we go to offshore, they're much larger in those offshore wind turbines, and there's a few reasons for that, but you might get to an average by the year 2035 of 17 megawatts for one turbine. Now the offshore ones are about six megawatts. And floating oh, right. offshore... So three times, yeah. yeah. and floating offshore is the one that really impresses me. They're not drilling down into the bedrock under the ocean because sometimes the ocean is not that deep and sometimes it's very deep. They have floating offshore wind turbines, <laughs> right. which are very clever. You know, it's not like a boat, you just leave it go and off it goes somewhere. You actually have some cables 
tying that back to the ground to bring the electricity back in, but they don't have to actually drill those down into the bedrock underneath the ocean. They just float in there. So they're actually cheaper to put up. And so they will be something that we'll see more and more of as well going forward. All very exciting, but the great thing about it, Common sense says this is what's going to happen, but the experts have actually done the analysis and given us some numbers to wrap around it, which is great because one thing that people often complain about is their electricity bill. Yeah, and you're exactly right. It's good to finally get those numbers in. And we had to assume that the technology was going to develop and it will continue to further. If I'm a proponent of a wind farm, I've probably thought about the costs. I've probably thought about the return on my investment because I'm investing my shareholders' money or even my money. Yeah, because there was always that, always that argument about, oh, but what happens when the wind doesn't blow? That's right. And we know that the wind doesn't blow sometimes, but... Well, these people that put these up, they don't just go and randomly pick a spot and say, there's a nice hill, I'll chuck some wind turbines up. They spend a fair bit of time well, testing. To, yeah, that's right, <laughs> to make sure that if they're going to invest the money in some wind turbines, they've done all the testing to know that the wind, sure, as you said, doesn't blow forever, but it's blowing consistently enough that they know they'll be able to produce yeah, electricity at that particular site. They don't go and build it without knowing there's a good, consistent flow of wind. And still, you might get times when not every turbine is spinning, but you don't rely on just one little area to produce all your electricity. You've got multiple areas. You've got solar. You've got wind turbines. You've got different ways of storing power. You build all that together, and you build a network that can support that. Who would have thought that diversification might be the answer for securing a a stoppable future? Stop it. Here's a headline for you. Global Electric Flying Car Grand Prix series to start off shortly. Is this the age of the Jetsons finally here? (laughs) Sounds good, doesn't it? The cars, or these flying electric cars, look really cool. They look like Grand Prix cars back from, say, the 50s or 60s. Something that Jack Brabham or Sterling Moss might have driven. Yeah, Yeah, right, okay. So they're kind of almost like the Monopoly car that you, the little token. So they look like that, but they've got some propellers, obviously. They've got... At each corner, they've got a dual propeller, so eight propellers on them. And these cars are little rockets. They'll go at 190 kilometres an hour. They'll do zero to 100 in 2.8 seconds. They fly about 500 metres above the ground. And the starter of this whole series is an Aussie guy named Matt Pearson. Now, he believes... Hang on a second. Can I just stop you here? With drivers in them? No. Oh, sorry. Not yet. Not yet. Okay, sorry. I'll let you get to that. No, that's fine. So Matt Pearson started this whole series... He believes the way to get innovation in any area is to put racing involved. When you have A versus B, they're trying to outdo each other, they're trying to make things better, and guess what? They come up with innovations. We see that in cars, we see that in motorbikes, we've seen it in Formula One and MotoGP for years. What they come up with 20 years ago, we're driving around with our cars today. You might say it's accelerated uh, innovation. You're killing me, you're killing me. (laughs) But that's exactly what Matt Pearson believes. You introduce racing. You'll introduce innovation. That will progress it much quicker. And before we know it, we'll be driving around in our flying cars. Now, in the first year, which is this year, they're planning on three races, three international races. And you're right, there won't be any pilots in them. They'll have two pilots on the ground flying them. But the really cool part about it is they'll be flying in an augmented course. So you won't have this car flying around and having structures in place that they've got to get around and they might get the cornering just wrong when they click like that the structure. Like the Red Bull series with the fast planes, the Grand Prix planes, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So they've got the blow-up structures in place that hopefully if they hit one of those, it doesn't destroy the plane. Mm. In this case, they've got augmented rally, so they've got to fly around a course and they've got to do the correct course and get around those various obstacles, but the obstacles are virtual. So if they don't quite get the cornering right, they might get a time penalty, they might have to go back and do that corner again, but they don't crash these cars, which I can't imagine these cars are cheap. You don't want to see one come falling out of the sky because some guy took the corner just a bit too close. And remember, he's on the ground, so he hasn't got his life to worry about. And so spectators, where are the spectators sitting? In their lounge room, 
watching on TV. Right, okay. So they're all going to be... But they'll be able to see what the pilots can see from yeah, the augmented reality, right? You're spot on. Ah. So you've got the augmented reality, the pilots can see that at home, we can see the course they're flying around, and you get that impression, just like watching a Formula One car, you get that impression of all that speed, all that acceleration. Then next year, the plan is to go a step forward. Assuming that everything goes well this year, they'll have three races, they'll have no accidents, everything will go fantastically, and these cars are built at the size where you can put a pilot in them. So next oh, year, they'll next put year, a 2022. 2022, there'll oh. be a pilot in there. <laughs> and I can imagine there'll be a pilot in there that's fairly well trained. These things will pull 5Gs as they go around some of the hairpin turns on yeah, circuits. Wow. Just like a fighter pilot, they're going to have to have, I imagine, wow. some sort of suit they can sit in that they can keep the pressure keep the blood going to their brains or they have to be incredibly fit to be able to handle all of that but again you'll get these incredible athletes flying these planes in the air that one day in the future James you and I will be able to get in this same vehicle or maybe not the same one but something that develops from this because of the work that's being done yeah right this this has got um, the Phantom Menace um, that uh, <laughs> that scene in Tatooine with Anakin Skywalker racing against all those aliens um, just, just without, without the lasers over. maybe yeah right <laughs> Here's a story about doctors using VR. Do you want a doctor playing with augmented reality while performing delicate surgery on you? Well, Matt's going to tell us a little bit more about what's been happening in the world of medicine. Do you remember those comics when we were kids? I think the Phantom was one that I used to to buy. And they'd have those crazy little things where you could send away and buy maybe a Phantom ring or... Yeah. X-ray glasses. Do you know what? That had me so excited. <laughs> X-ray glasses? <laughs> well, I never ordered the X-ray glasses. I don't know anyone who ever did, but I just couldn't work out the science behind the X-ray glasses. Otherwise, no, I would have had them. <laughs> it wasn't science. It was magic. It was magic, of And course. a bit of cardboard with some swirls painted on it. I don't know what... It, well, I never knew anyone that had them, so I didn't know what the, the even concept <laughs> was. But this is where we're at now. So when you've got a doctor working in surgery now on some delicate surgery, they've often got a screen they can look at to see some imaging they might have taken before in an MRI or an X-ray, that type of thing. And then they're working through a microscope, working away on the part of the body they're, they're working on. And they will take their eyes away from that part of the body, look up at the MRI, adjust their focus to that, make sure they're going in the right direction to take out the tumour or whatever they're doing, then look back down at the body and keep working away. Now, that's fairly distracting. And when you've got people working mm, with such... It's a disconnect. It's a disconnect, that's right. And you've got people working away... With delicate things, you want them to be very careful, and, and I'm sure they are. I'm not saying that doctors aren't. Mm. But if they could just have that flow a bit nicer, I think that'd be great. And that's exactly where we're headed now. You've got microscopes that have got augmented reality built into the microscope. So as they're looking through the microscope at the piece of the body, they can actually bring in the imaging, MRIs, X-rays, and so they can have that come forward into the focus or come less transparent and then make it fully transparent so they can see the body they're working on. So it almost gives them that X-ray vision where they can see behind. Let's say they're working on something, trying to get a tumour that might be underneath some bone or underneath an artery. They can see behind there in 3D because they've got the ability to see all the imaging there. It's a great use. I mean, I thought uh, augmented reality was just for playing games with James, but it sounds like a very practical use of AR. Absolutely. So the surgeon shifts between the augmented reality and the actual physical feature that's in front of them. Yeah. And they can, with, just with the flick of the button, they can go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And I'm not sure the actual mechanism. I'm not sure if it's done by audio command. I'm not sure if someone else in the surgery does it for them or if they do it. Maybe they've got their hands on instruments so they might mm. tell someone to bring it in and out. Because we're assuming this is keyhole surgery as well. It's, it's, it's sort of they're already using tools that are that are within with a small incision. They're not 
rummaging around with hands. Uh, I, I imagine that's the case. But even if they are rummaging around, sometimes when they've got someone open up, it is quite difficult because there's a few bits and pieces inside. It's oh, yeah. quite difficult to get underneath some of those bits and see what's under there. And you don't want to kind of be lifting it up and having a bit of a sticky beak and see what's there and then drop yeah, it back down. Yeah. So this is the way that doctors will be operating in the future where they can see much more than what they can see with the microscope. And again, keep their focus just on the microscope without having to look away anywhere else. So there is a great practical use for AR, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And on that note, folks, we round off another episode of Tech Talk. Thanks again, Matthew Dickerson, for your insights for another week. And it's been a pleasure having you listeners on board again for another joyride into tomorrow. I've been James Eddy in a fairly casual manner, and we look forward to offering you more next week. Thank you.